Hi everyone. Even though we always include content warnings in the episode descriptions, before we start this episode, we wanted to let you know that in this episode and in this movie, due to the nature of the film, we will be discussing some of the things we tag at a much higher uh, frequency than usual. We'll be discussing some of those things that we tag a lot more than usual, and we will be discussing rape, murder, gun violence, death, and the death of infants, colonization, genocide, and homophobia, as well as general gore. Hello and welcome back to our podcast, Where Do I Know Them From? As always, my name is Alexandra. And I'm Elizabeth. And this is the podcast where we watch every single movie that Sam Claflin has ever been in and report back to you guys. This week is kind of a doozy, so let's get into it. Elizabeth, take us away. It was startlingly difficult to find bad letterboxed reviews for it, which were all so funny. So we have all the same <laughs> level of review this week. Okay. Um, they're all four stars. And the first one says, good movie. I never want to subject myself to this again. Relatable. Which I felt like was apt. <laughs> then we have uh, four stars. Australia's 12 Years a Slave, where the real Tasmanian devil is an Englishman. Great. Which is, that's a real thinker. That comes yeah. to us from our trivia master, Drew. <laughs> Shout out. And then we have four stars. I did not know Sam Claflin had this side to him crying emoji. That's a rookie. <laughs> Clearly, this reviewer had never seen The Riot Club, which Honestly. is obviously the sequel to this film. Oh, my gosh. Well, if you can't tell from that last review, Sam Claflin, while a good actor, is an absolutely atrocious human in this movie. His character. The I character. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this movie is The Nightingale. It came out in 2018 and it was directed by Jennifer Kent. It was also screen written by Jennifer Kent, and it was edited by Simon and Jew. I'm not sure how to say that one, but that's my best guess. The cinematography is by Radek Lachuk, and it's not really based on a book per se, but it is kind of based on Jennifer Kent like looking into Aboriginal history and the history of colonization in Tasmania and in Australia. So you could say it's based on the past. As much as any uh, period it's piece based is on based on real the past. life, <laughs> just like every movie that has ever been created. <laughs> it is 136 minutes long, and it features the major actors, particularly Ashling Frankosi and Sam Claflin and Baikali Ganambar. But there are also some others that play lesser roles, including Damon Harriman, Harry Greenwood, Ewan Leslie, Charlie Shotwell, and Michael Shusby. The score is by Jed Kurzel, and it was produced by Causeway Films, Made Up Stories, Braun Creative, and Film Nation Entertainment, and it was distributed by Transmission Films. Your plot is, in 1825, Claire, a 21-year-old Irish convict, traces a British soldier through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness, bent on revenge for a terrible act of violence he committed against her family. She enlists the services of an Aboriginal tracker, who is also marked by trauma from his own violence-filled past. Now, a little bit of history, just a tiny bit a drop of history background for you. In the 19th century, and even a little bit before, Australia and Tasmania were part of the British Empire, and they were used as penal colonies. So the UK would send prisoners and convicts, as in the case of the 21-year-old Irish convict, which we listed in the plot, to both of those places to basically like live out their prison sentence. 
she is there serving out her prison sentence, which I believe was for theft. I'm going to take off my historical hat there. I just felt that it was important to throw in that the British soldier who is played by Sam Claflin is there because he is a colonizer and Claire is there because she is a prisoner. Although being from the British Isles, she, of course, has an element of colonizer in her as well. Yeah. So, Elizabeth, I think that that was a pretty bare bones plot. Do you want to add anything in? No, I think this is going to have to be one of those plots that we talk about as we go, just because like that's what's happening. And then there are several like like any adventure story, there are several like vignettes and like instances, but I think they might be more effective if we just talk about them when they come up. I would agree. Yeah, I think particularly because of the nature of this film and sort of the shocking and violent nature of this film, I think it's best if we leave some of these things like undiscovered until we come up on them. Definitely. This movie, as Elizabeth kind of hinted at when we read the Letterboxd reviews, has very good ratings. It has a 3.7 on Letterboxd, an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is certified fresh, and an audience rating of 73%. With the critic consensus reading, The Nightingale definitely isn't for all tastes, but writer-director Jennifer Kent taps into a rich vein of palpable rage to tell a war story that leaves a bruising impact. And I think that I would agree with that in that it is very clearly a critical masterpiece, and yet it is also very hard to watch. Yeah, I think that perfect, adept review. I don't know. It's a great review. (laughs) Difficult to watch, important story to tell. Yeah. The age-old tale. Yeah. Classic Metacritic is lower. Right. Because it's about women. (laughs) It is at a 77 critic consensus (laughs) with users at 6.8. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you might might like that one, Elizabeth. <laughs> Some things to say always about Metacritic and the women. Yeah. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, director Jennifer Kent was deluged with film scripts from the United States after she debuted with The Babadook, which is a hugely successful horror film, which came out in 2014. I have to admit, I have not seen The Babadook, so I don't know if it is a feminist masterpiece like this movie is, but I assume that it must have been pretty damn good if she was deluged by film scripts. She instead decided that she wanted to write this movie, and she's actually said that there will never be a sequel to The Babadook, so if anyone is out here hoping for that, just know it won't happen. Shooting for this movie began on location in Tasmania in March 2017, and due to the brutality of the film scenes, which we will be definitely talking about because they are one of the things that makes this movie so distinct, psychologists were actually brought onto the set to support the actors. Thank goodness. What I would like to know is... Did the psychologists approach helping the actors differently based on whether the actors were victimized in their scenes or whether they were the perpetrators? Mm, Interesting. I don't know. The Nightingale received media attention following its initial screenings at the Sydney Film Festival, where approximately 30 of the 600 filmgoers walked out of the cinema because of its extreme depictions of rape and murder. And I have to agree, they are extreme. These are, I know that Elizabeth and I have said this several times on this podcast, particularly in our first season with Saoirse Ronan, but these are I think the worst rape scenes or some of the worst rape scenes I've yeah, ever seen. Definitely not pleasant. Kent defended the decision to show such violence, saying that the film contains historically accurate depictions of the violence and racism which was inflicted upon the indigenous Australian people of that time. And the film was produced in collaboration with Tasmanian Aboriginal elders who asserted that this is an honest and necessary depiction of their history and a story that needs to be told. Kent said she understands the negative reactions, but stated that she remains enormously proud of the film and stressed to audiences that this film is about a need for love, compassion, and kindness in dark times. I'll also add in that throughout this film, they use an Aboriginal language, not all the characters, of course. Only the Aboriginal characters use this language. 
But they used this language and they reconstructed it from records because the actual Aboriginal language, which existed in the 19th century, has been mostly wiped out. So they completely reconstructed it from records and all the actors who play Aboriginal characters are mainland Aboriginal people from like Australia Mm -hmm. rather than Tasmania. I also think that while the scenes of violence in this movie are incredibly graphic, I don't understand why people walked out other than like potentially they were just uncomfortable. But like if the walking out is like a form of protest, like I just feel like on top of these scenes being the most graphic that I've ever seen in a movie, they're also shot with the most empathy that I've ever seen in filmmaking. And I think that that's an incredible part of like the message of this movie. And so like, I'm not really sure that while I know that I'm speaking from a place of privilege, I'm not really sure that I would walk out of this movie to protest what was going on in it. I could understand walking out of this movie if those scenes were triggering to you. Cause yeah, it was extremely violent and very difficult to watch, but I agree with you. Like I think the fact that it was written and directed by a woman and that the story is based on one of the women who gets raped and particularly based on her getting revenge and like seeking out her aggressors. It is very empathetic and all the shots are very like they're close on her face, but not in an aggressive, like intrusive way. Yeah, I have a lot more thoughts about the empathy in filmmaking, (laughs) but we can talk about them later. Well, since we're already here, let's talk about that empathy in filmmaking, because it's something that we kind of saw throughout. Oh, man. Okay. (laughs) Making me scroll all the way down to the bottom of my notes. Yeah, no, it's just kind of what you were already talking about. Like, I think that the close-up shots of their faces, like, she has several shots of Claire and of Billy, who is the Aboriginal guide that helps her navigate Tasmania, or the Tasmanian wilderness, I suppose. But anyway, there are a lot of close-up shots of their faces, and they're just, like, framed in this way where, like, it's not intrusive to the subject, but it's also, like, incredibly intimate you're really getting an understanding of like what they're feeling in that moment and not necessarily something happening around them. I don't know. It's just really good. And then I feel like she achieves this in so many ways besides just the really close up face shots, which she has a lot of, but even like towards the end of the movie, Billy has completed his little arc and he has sought revenge. And I mean, it's a spoiler, but ultimately he kills Sam Claflin's character. And then he is on this beach having this little moment. I don't know. It's like a full circle moment. He's gut stabbed so or gut yeah. shot at whatever he has a gut injury and so he is hallucinating and about to die but like he's speaking to the elders and like talking about like how his story has come full circle and he's still around and these white men can't get him down and all this stuff and like even that shot is from really far away because like claire and us like the viewer are like watching it happen and unfold the way that she expresses like you my audience which are going to be primarily white viewers like you're not a part of this story but it's still important for you to like see and understand and she just captures it in like the perfect angle of like reverence and respect I don't know like just the shot of Billy at the end right before he dies is a really good one in that I feel like we are understanding what's happening to him and we're sad that He's about to die, but we also feel like happy that he's like completed that arc and like we have a full understanding of like his story. And I think that that's really beautiful. I agree. And I think that part of that, like speaking almost to her white audience and saying like this is a story that you need to see, but acknowledge that it's not yours is kind of the plot of the movie also in that. Yeah. Claire, who is that Irish convict throughout the movie first we focus on it's her needing to get revenge for the murder of her husband and baby and also her brutal rape 
And then throughout the movie, she gets a much, much deeper understanding of Aboriginal culture, a deeper appreciation for Aboriginal culture as she hangs out with Billy. And it kind of transitions from her fight to Tasmania's, which is really meta. But it's like we get to a point in the film where Claire um, sees a dead Tasmanian man and it's just so horrifying to her that she basically says like, no, I, I, we can't do this anymore. I'm done. Like I'm backing out. But she picks herself back up because Billy says like, no, now it's my fight. Like I am a letter of Mariner man. This is my country. This is my home. And so it kind of transitions from her fight to his fight to, to like the broader, like Aboriginal versus white fight. It definitely like, yes. The character arc for Claire becomes so much more than like, you have wronged me. And the bridge to that, of course, is like her being Irish, right? So like Mm -hmm. they have this really powerful conversation around like the fire or whatever, where he's like, you're white, so you're bad. And she's like, no, I hate English people too. Yeah. (laughs) Because I'm Irish. And he says something about being English. And she's like, I'm Irish. I'm Ireland. And he says, you're England. And then they have a fight where they just yelled at each other for a while. But then she gets it. And she's like, yes, we hate the British people. And also maybe I'm a little bit bad, too. Yeah, they kind of bond over the trauma of English colonization. Yeah, it is. It's a very powerful, like, statement of white culpability rather than just British culpability, which I think is really useful for a lot of a lot of viewers to see. Yeah, for sure. I think that the themes of race are interesting in this movie because you don't necessarily expect them to be there. We don't really think about race in the context of European stories sometimes. And it feels weird to call Australian stories European. But like, I think that it's interesting the way that race plays into colonialism here in exactly what we just said. Like Claire is very convinced that like she is a minority because she's a woman and because she's Irish and because she is like a convict. But then, like, through this journey, she learns that, like, it's intersectional, right? Like, the identities. Like, while she has all these things in common with Billy, in that she is a, being oppressed by the British on the basis of her, like, class and sex, she's not being oppressed necessarily on the basis of, like, the color of her skin, which is, like, a very interesting concept. I feel like it's one of those things that, like, we as American viewers are probably not going to think about the same way because race is something that we think about all the time even if we don't realize we're thinking about it but I feel like this is probably a pretty impactful movie for like Europeans who think that they're racially progressive yeah or maybe they're just like oh yeah it really sucked and now we're better (laughs) (laughs) yeah I do think Claire's character is just so interesting like we've been saying this movie starts out as like a one woman has been wronged and then it turns into the whole country has been wronged but when we're in that one woman has been wronged man that woman has been wronged like just over and over and over again like so we start off the movie with claire in this like penal camp basically like in her in her little prison and she's been kind of like co-opted as a personal servant slash night performer by this one troop which is headed by lieutenant hawkins who played by sam claflin also known as the devil incarnate hawkins not (laughs) not claflin yeah we are not a fan of lieutenant hawkins and it kind of becomes clear very immediately that claire is alone here not that she is alone physically like she had there are other people there and she is married and she has a child but she's alone among the women because she has been singled out by hawkins as his basically he sees her as his sexual being and like basically a doll uh, even though he pays her in like little miniatures so i guess he ki- kind of sees her as a 
prostitute slash kept person. I don't know. The payment scene really, or like the bribery scene was a little weird to me and that I couldn't decipher how he actually feels about her. I think that it doesn't matter because it's exploitation either way. Like, You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where like, okay, so right, like rape, obviously not about sex, about power. Like on one hand, his like, you know, consistent and habitual rape of her is like to ex- exert power over her. But I think that that like the dynamic of paying her kind of feeds into this idea that like he really wants her to have to like be compelled to be with him yeah you know like that i that exactly what you're saying about like being kept or like being like have like relying on him he definitely wants to exert not just a sexual power over her but like a patriarchal one as well and that he wants to like provide for her which is just gross i hate it honestly the masculinity in this movie like this movie is saying a lot about masculinity and like for for a movie not even really about men yeah there <laughs> is an incredible depth to all the men like once we get claire on the road and she kind of like pursues for her first her vengeance and then billy's vengeance and she like eventually confronts the same coughlin with like that girl you raped whose husband and baby you murdered that girl died and you can't kill it's already dead like she gets a lot of metal lines but when she's dealing like mm-hmm. in between the scenes of her and billy there are a lot of other men on screen, primarily Hawkins and his crew, but also Claire's husband. And in the scene where Hawkins and his two boys, I don't know like what their station is, in the scene where he shoots her husband, throws her baby at the wall and drapes her twice, I think, in that scene. There's just like so many different layers of how the men are feeling about it. And also like her husband and he have a little bit of a standoff over like who is supposed to be providing for her and whether or not they're doing it adequately and she's just standing there yelling at them like because it's of course the woman's job to keep the peace and it's just so like oh my gosh yeah it's like it's just so it's so interesting to me in that like yeah like so many uh, they're like in the process of constructing their masculinity in so many like clear and obvious ways like literally every aspect of reinforcing patriarchy (laughs) happens in the first like five minutes of this movie like they're they talk a lot about like hierarchy and like adhering to that hierarchy and that like the guys in the little military with hawkins are talking about like kissing ass and like making sure that they're like listening to the people they're supposed to be listening to even if they don't think it's smart or whatever or that they should have to there's immediately a lot of like homophobia in that like there are insults about like getting fucked by other men and that being emasculating like and then also of course they're all Australian so they say cunt like (laughs) 27,000 times which I just like on okay obviously like they're Australian but also like I just feel like that's a really interesting detail because like we're immediately bombarding the audience with like aggressive sexual language like that's not like a a cute word yeah like we're automatically automatically things are violent aggressive and sexual just in the language that the men are using like towards each other which i think is you know like emblematic of a larger problem and that like if you're just using this language all the time do you become desensitized to these themes and then also like the first scene is in a tavern so we're automatically like adding alcohol into the mix and then there's this whole like there's like a debate somebody somebody is upset because someone else hasn't been drinking or something like that and then maybe sam does or sam's character decides not to drink which is fucked up for a different reason but yeah sam's character decides not to drink because he wants to i think be sober for when he rapes her later which is just awful 
Disgusting. I think also like each of the men sees Claire in a different way. Like in that altercation between Hawkins and Claire's husband, they say like, she's my wife and she's my property. So I'll do what I want with her. Whereas the other two men who were in that room, one of them just kind of sees her as like the entertainment, right? Because he's new, I guess. He's like wet behind the ears. And then the other one doesn't see her as his property because he's not in the same position of authority that Sam is. But he does still see her as like an object of like desire because he later rapes her as well. Yeah, I hate him. He's the worst. Ruse or something. Yeah, Jago is the one that I think is an audience insert character because he's a little bystander like he's complicit in her rape and also the murder of her child and husband i know that he is the one that technically kills the child but like he's like paralyzed with fear about anxiety over like the decision like because uh hawkins keeps yelling at him and saying like do something to make the kid stop crying and he like doesn't know what to do and then the baby gets thrown against the wall yeah a lot of the movie when there are multiple people in the scene it is very overwhelming not because there's a score like not a not a not an overwhelming like like dramatic score it's just like there's so much yelling particularly when there is that baby is there no score which i think is important mm-hmm. yeah you commented while we were walking, watching this that the sound design is exquisite so i'm excited to talk about it later it's beautiful yeah and hawkins later when he's on the road with this other crew they add in a little boy and he's kind of he's raising him into him this movie made me hate men yeah i can't even believe like that whole arc with the little kid where hawkins is like teaching him how to be a man and like using him to like reinforce the misbehavior of the other grown-ass men in his party fucking yucky i didn't care for it let little kids be little kids and don't let that little kid do gross stuff. Stop letting that little kid kill people. He didn't kill anyone. Yeah. I think also for each of the men here, there is that in addition to like, they're all experiencing their own different forms of masculinity. They're also kind of all trapped in a different way in their position. Even Hawkins, who is like probably the most powerful one here still feels trapped in his position. Cause he's like, he's not the most powerful man in the army, right? There's a man over him, the captain who like, kind of pretends to put down his treatment of Claire for a second there. And there's the guy who like denies him the captaincy in the North. So I think that probably part of the reason why Hawkins is acting out so much is because he feels trapped in his position and like super powerless and he feels like he needs to exert some control. And this is mm-hmm, the way sure. that society has raised him to do that. But all the men I'm are I'm a man like, with equal. no power. Does that mean I'm a woman? <laughs> yeah. Take away men are bad. Just kidding. Take away. Men can be better. Patriarchy makes men yes. bad. Barbie. Take away competition. Bad for people. Yes. 100%. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. Next. Yes. Women. I think the great thing about this movie is that the patriarchy commentary, the feminism commentary, and the race commentary all go yeah, together. they all reinforce. Like, it's really hard to isolate them. So despite the fact that I would argue that the themes of feminism are stronger than the themes of, well, that's actually not true. I would probably argue that masculinity is the strongest theme and then race and then femininity. But they all kind of go together. So we're reinforcing stuff that we already know. Yeah. And we've kind of talked through like how this movie tackles femininity and that like it sort of transitions the focus from femininity to race and from masculinity to race as well. But like Elizabeth said, they're all intertwined. So it's hard to talk about them separately. 
One thing though, that I do want to kind of like use to springboard us from this talk of like gender and race into the tools of the movie, like the symbols is this one quote from Claire where she says, I'm not your whore. I'm not your nightingale, your little bird, your dove. I'm not your anything. I belong to me and to no one else. When all the women are raped, when all the men and babies are killed, what will you do then, Lieutenant? And I think it's kind of, well, one, it serves to sort of like highlight the futility of trying to exert control in this space where there are so many elements going on and like no one, no one who is on screen is like the end all be all of Tasmania, right? No one has all the authority, but it also kind of, Mm -hmm. well, it says, you know, the name of the movie, which is The Nightingale. And I think that it kind of gets at that symbol of birds and i want to talk to you about this because i when watching this was thinking hmm, is she the nightingale but i didn't have any deeper thoughts than that so i know that you did do you want to share them <laughs> yeah okay nightingales have always eluded me as literary and artistic symbols because i feel like they represent more than they actually do technically Technically, nightingales are symbols of virtue, purity, goodness, and frequently in poetry, they represent the voice of nature, which poets usually connect to the voice of themselves. So like usually in poetry, when you see a nightingale, the idea is the nightingale is nature's poet, right? Like that it is telling this story of nature and that it is expressing the emotionality and history of the land through its little song just in the way that poets do whatever john keats wrote this very famous poem called ode to a nightingale where he's basically like flirting with death he uses the nightingale as a symbol of like immortality in the sense that like nightingales have always sounded the same to him i'm not a birder (laughs) i don't know about birds or ornithology so if that's wrong you can take it up with john keats himself but in in the poem he says that like nightingales calls have existed throughout time and they've been heard by ancient emperors and clowns and so he's kind of getting to this like cross race cross not that clowns and emperors are different races cross class cross race cross time thing Okay, so in that poem, nightingales are immortal and they rep- they can also represent suffering, mourning, and death, which is, I think, where we get a little a little tricky. But that's really just because they sing as it is becoming nighttime, which, like, many people use in poetry, art, and media to represent, like, the end yeah. of something, which is usually life, right? So, like, nightingales are tricky <laughs> because they mean so many different things all the time. But I think <laughs> that based on these things, she is the nightingale and also tasmania is the nightingale in that like her story is more like it's cyclical it's going to keep happening just in the same way that like every day the nightingale is going to like sing the exact same song at the end of the day because the it's the end of the day <laughs> i think that the nightingale is interesting because while the actual plot ends hopefully a little bit calling this movie the nightingale adds some like futility to it okay yeah, because like it's cyclical and immortal, but also there's hope in that too, in that like she and her song are immortal and there's always going to be resistance to these like atrocities of the world, right? Like even when people die, the nightingale is going to keep singing because even if that nightingale dies, another one is going to keep singing, right? So like it's this like very complicated mix of like suffering and purity and immortality. Yeah, I like how you said that this is like cyclical. Because 
but also hopeful because in that final scene, so after Claire and Billy get to the town where Hawkins and his crew have been heading to try and take up this northern captaincy and she and Billy catch up to them to try to kill them. After they do, after they kill Hawkins, Ruse, and I think that's actually the only ones who are left, after they kill Hawkins and Ruse, Billy leaves that encounter shot in the gut. And so we basically know that he's not going to make it, although I choose to believe that Billy survives this film. They ride off into the distance towards the sea. And just like in Lilo and Stitch, when he discovers that islands, you can't leave them. We kind of reach the end of their journey, right? They can't go anywhere else. And Billy presumably dies staring at the sun rising, which the sunrise is hopeful, but it's also over the ocean, right? Like he's reached the end of the land. And we know by this point that all of his people are dead. So it's kind of like, where are you going from here? I know that this is not really related to the theme of that scene, but it is very much related to the scene in general. I think that that's just so interesting because like they've become so close, Claire and Billy at that point, and uh, they get there to the end of their journey to the beach and she is really far away from him. Yes. Like he walks like probably it's probably like 50 feet away from her and then the rest of the scene just plays out with her being that far away from him and some of the shots are shot from her perspective and some of them are shot from like observing both of them like her standing at the edge like watching all of this happen to Billy and I know that I already said this but like I just feel like that's another really good example of how like even though Claire has become so entangled in this journey about like Tasmania and its indigenous people She's still separate from that because it's like his journey, you know? Yeah. I think it's a really empowering shot for Billy. Like this whole time, Billy has kind of been her like quirky sidekick. And I think that that moment really hammers home that like what you had said before, like this has become Billy's journey and Billy represents all the Tasmanian people. <laughs> yeah. Particularly like particularly literally, he is the last letter of Mariner man. Yeah. And so he has to represent his people. And because the letter of Mariner's were one of the first Tasmanian groups to be wiped out or almost wiped out during English colonization. He like transcends into being, like you said, all of Tasmania. Yeah. I also think, well, do you want to say anything else about birds? No. I don't have a lot to say. I feel like it's worth noting that Billy frequently calls himself Blackbird or like the Blackbird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so I feel like that bird parallelism is important, but I don't know a single thing about blackbirds. <laughs> yeah. And there's a blackbird that shows up at one point that kind of like guides Claire from wherever she is into the town. So I think it might be worth noting that perhaps the blackbird is Tasmania in that Tasmania wants her to succeed in killing Hawkins because Hawkins is the freaking worst. But I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I also don't know anything about birds. Sorry, dad. No, it's okay. I All of our bird folks out there, you just let us know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that there's a lot you could say about birds. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. Retweet. Har- retweet. <laughs> Literally, because uh, it's birds. But yeah, I think birds play another important role in this movie in that like sound as resistance. I'm going to talk about the sound design. <laughs> Go for it. It obviously has a score. But it's very little. I actually think that the only composed pieces during this movie are in her memories and dreams, Mm -hmm. which are very creepy. And they are kind of tinny like music boxes. But more importantly, I 
was just like in awe about the fact that there is no music <laughs> the whole time. But like sound is so important in that like when she is happy, like when in the place of like a moving score is the sound of nature. Like yes. there are a lot of like birds singing and like you hear like water move it. Like the more nature you hear, the happier the characters are except in these like music box memory things where like things get really dark and there's she has like hallucinations and stuff again especially in that final scene with billy like in the place of this like swelling like perfectly composed score there's just like these amazing sounds of like the ocean and like the birds and him and like you can really hear like every breath that he's taking in that moment and i just feel like it's so powerful <laughs> and also like they're both birds right so there's a a lot of singing in this movie even though there's not necessarily like backing to that singing there's a lot of like acapella folk singing kind of vibes and I think that that is like really crucial in the whole like song as resistance element of it which ties into like the language right they both sing in Gaelic and in the aboriginal language and this kind of connects us all back to the whole like there are parts of people you can't take away and there are parts that colonialism can't crush and I just think it's beautiful I also think just to layer in the cinematography here that a lot of the movie is kind of a mix of those really intimate face shots that we've been talking about and little tiny details like of just her hands doing something or just like a tiny detail mixed with these huge wide perspective shots where Claire and Billy or the crew of the evil boys is just dwarfed by this massive Tasmanian forest. And there are like lots of shots upward into the leaves and like the tree line. And that just so clearly like Tasmania and the wilderness and these trees are dominating the screen. And just as they are beginning to dominate the story. And so I think like the sounds of nature are doing that same thing. And that like when Claire, when she's earning that catharsis, as she is starting to let go of her journey towards vengeance and transitioning towards Billy's, the nature kind of turns up and the trees get more dominant on the screen, just as Tasmania's story is becoming more dominant in the film. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Exquisite. Thanks. We just kind of keep wrapping around to that one thing <laughs> that we figured out at the beginning, right? This is the downside of not talking about the movies while we're watching them. But <laughs> yeah. Also, this is the beauty of watching film with your friends and talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the sound design and the cinematography really like capture empathy in a way that I have never considered in film before. The whole time I was watching this movie, I was like, I was like, I'm almost not, I mean, I am upset, but like I was going into this movie ready to be like, I don't think we should have depicted violence this way. Like I was ready to like really interrogate the violence and like, what's it for? And why are we depicting it so graphically in film? And then just like the way that it is, I cannot explain it. Like everyone should just watch the movie unless it is going to be deeply traumatizing for you and then don't. But like, it's just the way that she captures all of these like horrific things. Like I know exactly how I'm supposed to feel about it, right? Like it doesn't cause me complicated feelings. It makes me like mad in the way that it's supposed to be mad because like we're not watching a whole rape happen. We're watching a woman's face as it's happening, which is like just as horrific, but like, I don't know. For some reason, I was just watching it and I was like, 
women like the empathy like to a degree I've never seen before I don't know my I'll I'll spoil it for you guys early on and I'll tell you that my review of this movie was five stars and I said I never wanted to watch a movie directed by a man ever again and the more I sit here and talk about this movie the stronger I feel about that (laughs) which does not bode well for this podcast since we have several more movies directed by men I did actually want to ask you that and I know that you've just kind of given an answer but I want to ask it again more explicitly do you think that the theme and the overall message of this movie justifies the violence that Jennifer Kent uses? Yes, I do. And that might be an unpopular opinion. I think the film could have been made without the violence and achieved the same messages, but not as impactfully. I Like, surely you can shoot something that implies rape. Surely you can shoot something that implies the hanged bodies of Aboriginal people. I don't know. For some reason, like, maybe it's just that I hyped this movie up a lot in my head because I knew that it was going to be bad. (laughs) But, like, something about the way that it was shot did not make me, like, I've watched rape scenes before in movies that make me, like, want to throw up. They're so, like, aggressive and hostile. And I just felt like these ones weren't angry. Like, the filmmaking wasn't angry. The filmmaking was empathetic. And yes. like because of that, like the feelings I was feeling were deep sadness, which doesn't make me want to like vomit or get up and walk out. It makes me want to keep watching the movie and find out what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think that to me, like the way that this movie portrays violence is almost the whole point. I agree. I went into this movie. Spoiler. I had seen this movie once before. I watched it on accident because I thought that it was going to be a cute period piece and I love those. And instead, I was up all night. <laughs> wow. Imagine, this... imagine watching this movie, like thinking you're going to get a cute little Outlander moment. And then <laughs> literally, and that then was all me. of a sudden the baby is hitting the wall. You're crying and throwing up. <laughs> literally, I couldn't sleep. Oh so God. I turned this on and I was like, OK, now I can't sleep for a different reason. So this was the second time I had seen it. <laughs> I really expected this movie to be this season's Annette. Oh, boy. It wasn't. So, yeah, but I like I went into this movie the second time expecting a lot of our discussion to be about does the theme justify the violence? And I think we've both like answered for ourselves and now also for you guys until you go and watch it and decide that we're wrong, that the violence is so integral. Like you couldn't I I disagree with you. I don't think you could tell this story without it. Like, I think that implying rape or implying hanging bodies or implying any of the murders here wouldn't work. Even the rape of that Tasmanian woman who was not Claire. Oh my who, God, like, I forgot about that. Barely speaks. Like, I'd even if her rape was not explicitly shown, that it would be a less powerful movie. Yeah, I do think that there is something to be said about like when violence is depicted in this manner, you're automatically going to alienate audiences. And I fear that all too frequently it is the audiences that you intend to get that are alienated you know like I feel like I know a lot of very strong women in my life that would be that would want to watch this movie because it's about like an important topic right but I feel like I know a lot of men that are like oh it's kind of intense no thanks I don't want to watch it and that's really like reductionist of me because obviously there are men that want to watch like really gory stuff and maybe they would get accidentally tricked into watching this but it's like I guess it is kind of a gory movie I was gonna say it's not a gory movie but they do smash that guy's whole face in. So. <laughs> yeah, all of the murders are so brutal. Like the ones that are kind of removed, like 
the multiple times that Hawkins or any of the other British soldiers shoot someone or the time that uh, Jago slams the baby into the wall, like one of the most brutal deaths I've ever seen. All of those are super removed, but they're still just horrific because there's that distance, I think. And then yeah. the ones that are closer up where, for example, Claire like bashes that man's face in after she stabs him like 30 times. Horrific because of, you know, the extreme violence, but also horrific because like that's her catharsis. You know, that's her getting out all of her rage yeah, on this man that killed her baby. And I mean, this movie also just like, in addition to the murders and rapes, just continually reiterates violence on her too. And that like, we see her losing her milk, the milk that was in her breast because her baby was a newborn when it, when it was murdered, her milk like calcifies. Yeah. And that like would hurt. She has to put her. Okay. This is going to sound like a little rocky. Give me some credit. (laughs) She, like, has to put herself in an uncomfortable situation by going with this guide that she doesn't know and that she initially doesn't trust because he's black. Because he's Aboriginal, I guess. They call them black in the film. And uh, so, like, she initially has to go on this journey with someone that she doesn't trust, albeit for the wrong reasons. But, like, and then on top of that, there are so many instances in which, like, she has to justify why she's traveling without her husband and, like... Yeah. Like, the, yeah, it's just there's constantly there's a constant threat. Yeah. A girl can't catch a break. There's so many also like even just in the in the 11 minute lead up to the first rape, which is really early for a rape to appear in a movie. There are so many like microaggressions. For sure. Um, for where, sure. Like men stare at her violently and talk to her violently. And Mine very Sam... much has an undertone of violence. Yes. Just like from Barbie. The yeah. movie is very violent, but I think it needs to be yeah but i agree with you i was just on the phone with my friend today and i was telling her that i was going to record this podcast about this movie and how amazing this movie is and how hard it was to watch and she was like wow i would love to watch a feminist masterpiece but i'm not going to watch that and i think that like you said the intended audience for this is maybe not specifically white women but it's probably white people since half of white people are white women and a lot of women have experienced some form of sexual assault or sexual harassment that like having to see that in such violence on the big screen might turn a lot of people away from watching this movie. Yeah, we can only hope that it attracts enough film bros to yeah, get its from message the to get its message across, but I like I think this movie is fantastic. I think it's so 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 good. Yeah. We've talked through most of the things that I wanted to talk about up until the characters themselves. And I want to kind of focus particularly on Hawkins because this is a Sam Claflin podcast. But I think that Hawkins's design, like the way that he is dressed and the way that he is portrayed mm-hmm. is really important to the movie. In that, I don't know, maybe you'll disagree with me, but I felt like every time Hawkins was on screen, he looked small. Like mm, Sam was like hunched into himself, like his shoulders were in. And we know from having seen him in all these other movies that sam has fairly broad shoulders and that he like can kind of dominate a space but here despite the fact that hawkins was like dominating the space in that he was raping people murdering people yelling all the time trying to exert power he just looked really small and that his shoulders were like all folded in and he was usually shot a little bit wider than other people like not on the face but instead like maybe from a mid-range he does 
like he also wears a lot of clothing that kind of dwarfs him like he's always wearing a lot of layers for some reason and like his body looks very small inside of a very large outfit yes that was a poor way of explaining it but yeah that's a good catch i didn't necessarily notice that until you brought it up i think also like the first time that we see him he is wearing all white uh, as opposed to everyone else that he is with who is wearing all red later throughout the movie he is also wearing red so that one shot of him wearing white and then all the shots of him looking small i think kind of served to communicate one that he thinks he is more pure and bigger than he is fair and uh-huh. that we know that he's not yeah idiot i hate idiot, him yeah. yuck poopy one thing that i did want to ask you though that kind of goes along with that is the violence justified question is do you think that hawkins is a realistic character because mm. i came away from this particularly by the end thinking hawkins is evil incarnate like no <laughs> one is that bad for real i would like to believe that hawkins is not a realistic character that he is like evil incarnate i have consumed a lot of media that depicts characters like hawkins but i have yet to meet a hawkins in real life which i feel like is good but i think that the point of the movie is sort of that like hawkins is everything that could be wrong with a man right like every single thing about patriarchy that is bad is happening to him right like but the way that he like infects other men around him to make the wrong decisions is more important sure he's like stereotypical or like grandiose in the sense that like he's not very realistic but like the way that he affects the men around him is emblematic of how like toxic masculinity affects men around it and how like that's the realistic part like how those two got Roos and the other guy that smushes the baby <laughs> like how they can be like put into a situation where they're like so panicked that they make the wrong decision or they're feeling like so pressured by society or like so angry at their like class or social positioning I don't know that's my answer okay I agree and I think part of that is just to Go back to what we keep saying. This is going to turn out to be a very repetitive podcast, but so we'll go back to what we keep saying is that empathetic filmmaking in that even Hawkins, who is so evil, like unbelievably evil, is shot in an empathetic way. N- not yeah. as close as other people, but like he's shot in a way that like, like I said earlier, when we were talking about masculinity, you can tell that he feels trapped. Yeah, and that he like he feels small even if other people aren't seeing him that way. Because I mean, yeah, like we still get those like those classic like up angle shots when he's doing something bad because he's exerting power yeah. over people. But also like in those moments where he's feeling helpless, particularly when he's like yelling at his men, he is usually shot from like even just like from a little hot. Yeah, he's he's little in the frame. One thing that I didn't quite understand, Re Hawkins, is like why at the beginning, like what the value of the guy in charge of him, like the captain, why he tries to reprimand, I'm not why he tries to reprimand Sam. Obviously, Hawkins did something bad, but like why, what is the value of having the higher authority to Hawkins try to come down on him? Like, are we, is it giving not all men? Because no. <laughs> It's not. I think that the value is to reinforce the audience that Sam is not the end all. He's not the ultimate power. Like the futility in this place. stuff you're talking about before. Yeah, there's that futility in that. Like this whole this entire movie plays out among fewer than twenty people. Yeah, and 
as impactful as it is for us, the audience, and for them, because almost all of them except for Claire come out dead, as impactful as it is, it doesn't mean anything in the larger circle of like Tasmanian colonization. Like you said, this is a cyclical story. It will continue to happen. And as much as like as Billy is standing there dying on the beach, as much as the sun is rising and hope is rising, it's still cyclical, right? That that trauma is still being inflicted. And this this tiny subset, like the man outside, the man who was in charge of Hawkins being outside of that set and like never reappearing, I think it just serves to like show how how insular this story is and how it its enormous impact does not explode out. Yeah. Sam Claflin loves to play in a what is it for movie. I think yeah. that might be a theme. He loves a story of futility. Yeah. It's never for anything. This movie hits on a lot of themes for Sam. One, he is awful. Two, he dies. And three, nothing matters. Oh, and of course, brown haired girl. <laughs> yeah, brown haired girl is object girl. of his desire. And yeah. you guys, we got some Sam screams again in this movie. Oh my God. I don't remember <laughs> what the scene was, but I wrote it down. So it must have happened. But oh boy. And there's one in the next movie too, which you guys, you don't even know how excited I am to be hearing more Sam screams. I can't believe people keep letting him do it. Honestly. We need maybe to find they'll a sound stop eventually and put it in here. I'll work on that for you guys. Wow. All right, Elizabeth. You've already told us that this is a five-star movie for you. Yeah. And it is also a five-star movie for me. I think that Sam himself gets a five also. I okay. think that his acting here was exquisite. I think okay. that he did a really good job of playing Hawkins, even though I hated Hawkins so much. From me, Hawkins gets a negative 30, like an, yeah. as low a score as possible. I'm going to give Sam a five because I'm choosing to believe that this is exquisite acting and nothing more. Yeah. <laughs> nothing <this> point, deeper. <laughs> it's uh, happened a few too many times. Like. Yeah. Yeah. And on one hand, I would rather someone knowingly take a bad role, <laughs> a bad guy role and play it evil than I would a someone take it that thinks it's kind of ambiguous, play it ambiguous and then let the film bros. He's just like me for real it. So I'm choosing mm, to believe yeah. that Sam is the best actor I've ever seen and not at all evil. Yes. Yeah. I am choosing to believe that as well <laughs> until evidence proves otherwise. For sure. I will continue to believe that he's just really good at acting like a douchebag. Yeah. Well, make sure that you guys follow us on Instagram at where do I know them from? And make sure you tune in next week. And just as a shout out to everyone here, go watch more movies made by and written by women. More women. Thank you. 